the intersection of success and spirituality podcast, episode number 121 with biblical scholar and professor, Dr. Jeanette Oak, work-life balance and womanhood. When my husband's out and about doing stuff, people don't ask him, so who's watching your kids? (laughs) I get that question. I don't know why they're asking like my dog. I don't know, like of course I've taken care of childcare or their dad, right? Uh, but so that kind of question, again, it's well-intentioned, but it, it reveals this double standard. Like you, I'm aware that you're here and I'm glad you're here, but what about home? Hey there, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Intersection of Success and Spirituality podcast for goals of high performers and achievers with their spiritual and inner life. My name is Joshua Galdas, and I'm your host. And wherever you are right now, wherever you find yourself, I just want to start off by saying from the bottom of my heart, I would like to start off by saying thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Wherever you find yourself, whether you're cooking, working out, doing errands, in the car, on a plane, in your morning routine, or even right before you're going to sleep. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, In our modern times, there's just so much content out there these days, and I feel it's so easy to sometimes get into content overload. Anybody know what I'm saying? There's a lot of blogs, podcasts, a lot of posts on social media. And here as a content creator, I'm constantly trying to see, explore, question, listen. What is it that you as a listener long and need to hear And if you've been listening to the show for some time, you probably know that we're having some groundbreaking conversations that we need to be having on spirituality, work, identity, and so much more that is so relevant to those that listen to the show. And today's conversation is a highly important one. And I'm so thrilled to have today's guest. For two decades, 20 years of ministry experience, she's an assistant professor of biblical and theological studies at Azusa Pacific Seminary, which is a part of Azusa Pacific University. Her specialty, as she conducts research on 1 Peter and the formation of early Christian identity, and is interested in Asian American, intersectional, feminist, and social scientific approaches to biblical interpretation. She's an interdisciplinary scholar with a practical focus on church ministry and leadership. And in today's episode, we talk about covert and overt sexism in the workplace, the true grit required to finish a PhD, current concepts on gender roles, this whole concept of work-life balance, and so much more. Such an incredibly insightful and important conversation today, and a true honor to have with us Dr. Jeanette Oak. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you. It's an honor to be here, Doc. Uh, there, there's so much you've been doing uh, as of late, but one thing is there are some people that are meeting you for the very, very first time, and for all those that are meeting you for the very first time, if you were to tell us what you do and who you are, what would you tell us? Well, my name is Jeanette Oak, and I am a professor of New Testament at Azusa Pacific Seminary, which is at Azusa Pacific University, and that's where I met you. I was one of your professors, right? Yeah. Three years ago. Um, I'm also a pastor at Echo Church in Anaheim, California. And I've been there for about eight years, and we're uh, reaching our 10th year as a church. We were a plant, and we're continuously um, maturing and growing and learning along the way. I'm a mother of three kids, Martin, who's 11, Ari, who's eight, Theo, who's six. They keep me really busy. And I am uh, the wife and best friend and life partner of Ricky Oak, my high school sweetheart. I remember that a few years back um, when I was in the process of finishing after I'd finished seminary and I remember in this very office we had like a conversation about the possibility of pursuing a PhD and just what that journey would entail and as we talked I remember going home and just in wonder to see how much sacrifice how much delayed gratification how much just dedication takes to really get a PhD and it really opened my eyes and for those that are listening right now that perhaps haven't really seen that. Uh, Can you just open our eyes to just your own journey and just the journeys of those around you? Doctoral studies is no joke. And I wasn't trying to discourage you from pursuing PhD studies, but also to let to to kind of demystify or uh, to be realistic about what one gets themselves into. So yeah, it was uh, a it was a labor of love. But man, it was a lot of labor. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I remember when I was an MDiv student, I had a, a friend, uh, James Logan, Dr. James Logan, who teaches at Earlham College. And he told me, I asked him, what is it, you know, what is one of the things that helps you go, keep going? Because he was so diligent. He's a great dad and husband. And uh, he, he was an active leader and member of his community and of our Princeton Seminary community. And it's what was kind of something I need to know about doctoral studies. And he told me delayed gratification mm. that. Right now, it's the grind. Like you're, you know, you're you're plugging away. You're learning. You're work. Your late nights and hardships, but or early mornings, depending. But for a larger good, for the for uh, to fulfill your calling, really. Mm. And so I, I really took that to heart. That not all things, not all dreams, not mm. all visions, not all callings are easy to realize. It takes years. It takes some very unglorious, unglamorous put your butt in a chair, sit in the library for hours and hours type of work. And so that was something that I prepared myself for. But gosh, when you're in it, you don't realize how hard it can be. So it was it was challenging. And I think one of the hardest things, too, is, you know, you do your doc, you do your bachelor's and you do your master's and you feel like, oh, OK, I can do this. I love to learn. I love to study. I love to translate what I learn and study to the real life, to ministry, et cetera. But when you go to a rigorous program, you realize, you know, when you get trained in academic discipline, you mm. get disciplined, you get schooled, and that's it shapes you. And um, you also have to really fight the imposter syndrome. Like, you're supposed to be here, but you doubt that. You're like, oh, my gosh, can I really get through this? Do I have what it takes? Do I have the chops? And, uh, yeah, so that was something I had to fight regularly that doubt, that self-doubt along the way, because I really believed and desired and pursued this from a young age, that I wanted to do it, that I, um, if the doors would open, and I, would, I knocked on those doors hard. I, per, I really uh, was intentional about the course, 
But when you're in it, it's hard to remember the vision. Hmm. And so part of the thing that helped me through was a community that sent me. Hmm. And I wasn't just going as this lone person, but I was going sent by the community of faith, my church, my community, my uh, friends and family that believed also in the calling uh, to go into ministry, to be an academic, to uh, serve the church in those ways. Wow. Yeah, one of my mentors and professors, Dr. Brian Blunt, he's at Union Presbyterian Seminary, Virginia. He told me that one of the things to survive the doctoral program was not just smarts, uh, but stamina and savvy. You need all three. You can't just, you might get in with a two, but in the end, you need all three to really get through and survive. And so I remembered that along the way as well. I also remember you you mentioning this story of, I think, one of your friends for like a while, or there was somebody you knew that for a while even doing was doing their shopping like at a Goodwill shop just because of how hard it was. And the financial sacrifice, too, you mean. And I think that's mesmerizing. Uh, but I've heard that even though after that, so you get to this level of, I think when I look at ministry or academia, I've heard stories that even after you've gotten to that part, um, there's still sometimes for some professors loans, for other people there's different journeys. But I feel that at a certain level you have a status But it's not necessarily, even when you get to that level, it's not necessarily that you have like the craziest of riches of the world. It's still, yeah, I guess for most people, I feel it's comfortable living and you kind of get to a a better place. But how do you live with the dichotomy that you're in this place that's respected, but not necessarily this place where you're like making the millions in the same time? You don't hit the jackpot going into academia, at least in certain fields. Uh, most sure. fields. Yeah, I don't. I think the same goes with ministry. People don't go become pastors, become professors, uh, in order to make it big in terms of the in money. Um, now, some find a way to you know make ends meet or have spouses that work or I don't know. There's all different configurations, but yeah, it's not the most lucrative journey for sure in terms of the time and effort put into getting there and um, fostering that career and that calling. So, how do I? live with that dichotomy yeah well, I guess it keeps you humble hmm. and it's funny like I was talking to my my brother he's an attorney and you know my my uh, allowance for travel at uh, for conferences and such is like the amount he gets for like one day of work when he's abroad for the dinner and the housing it's like for the whole year and so again one doesn't go into this with uh, the expectation that it's going to be a cushy life, but I'm really grateful uh, that it's something that I'm able to do and make a living off of. It is mm. a gift. I don't take it for granted. I'm very fortunate, and uh, I'm not complaining or anything. You've had quite a journey, and so today you're in a respected seminary. You've also contributed to many uh, scholarly works. Uh, you've had quite a trajectory, but if we were to go back all the way down when Dr. Jeanette Oak was just a child. Uh, what could you tell us about your childhood? I lived in a multi-generational home. Uh, my parents immigrated to Korea, uh, from Korea to the States. They weren't married at the time, but they met here in the States, which is also a very unique situation. But they, we were in Detroit. That's where we were born. I was born in Michigan, in Southfield, Michigan, and we lived near in a suburb of Detroit. And uh, we, my grandparents lived with us. We had aunts. My mom was the oldest of eight daughters, so we had aunts and cousins who lived with us along the way. Um, I remember that being really interesting and weird because relative to my friends, we've always had 
a lot of people in the house living there and not just visiting. And we always had the, the aroma of Korean food cooking. And I was never ashamed of being Korean, but I was acutely aware that there weren't a lot of people like me where I lived. And that uh, I sometimes felt, you know, over, you know, one of the things that was really precious to me was being a part of the, uh, the Korean church hmm. as a kid. I can articulate it better now, but in retrospect, I just remember on Sundays, I loved going to church. I mean, not only to study the Bible and, <laughs> and uh, you know, worship the Lord, but really, and, and play with your friends, but it, I could f- sigh a breath of relief hmm. that I didn't have to bend over backwards hmm. to make sense of the world. And like, you know, you, you make a lot of negotiations even as a kid without thinking hmm. based on racial ethnic differences and what's considered normal and those challenges of assimilation and, and, and the struggle to uh, figure out how to survive school and thrive even and, and friendships and these micro uh, racist comments and just ignorant statements that would be said and made that as a kid you kind of don't know how to respond to but you it collectively commu- accumulates inside mm. that people are struggling to make sense of you and make a lot of assumptions as well. But back to my childhood in terms of the home, my mom was a physician and is a physician, retired. But that was also interesting. I remember people would ask me, what does my mom do? And I would say, she's a doctor. And they would go, oh, you mean a nurse? And I never understood Hmm. why they always or often asked that second question. It was so, and I'm like, did I stutter? I mean, what am I not making myself clear? (laughs) It's like, it didn't make sense to me until after when I got a little bit older. But at the huh. time, it was like hard for people to believe that, I guess. I don't know if it was because she was a woman, because she was a Korean woman. I'm not sure. But that was very interesting. I remember, you know, she was able to work and I felt like she was a really great mother. I never thought, oh, why does she work? Or that thought there was something that was lacking. And I think that helped me as I got older, that to be a working woman and a mother were not uh, opposed to each other, that it wasn't mm. always in conflict, that it can be in concert. Or it was what I knew and expected. And my brother also expected for his life that he marry a person who would also have her career. Hmm. Uh, and so that was an interesting uh, part of my upbringing. My father was a very affectionate, he is and still is a very affectionate dad. He, uh, a lot of times people think of the Korean first generation dad as loving but stoic. Hmm. Loving and showing that through work and provision, but not so much through words. But my dad was weird like or unique in the sense that he was very affectionate with me and would often express his love, how proud he was of me. And I, I think that was really a gift too, to be raised like that. And my brother and I, uh, you know, he, he was born and bred to be like an attorney. Like he was so good at his work. Uh-huh. And he was like a really, you know, he always pushed me. Uh, you know, you fight with people, like you fight with your siblings. You're not supposed to make sense because you're fighting with your siblings. But he's like, it's not a clear argument, like makes sense. Like, make be more cogent, you know. Uh, defend yourself better. He did. That's weird. Like, who does that? But I realize, you know. I think he grew up thinking, you know, this girl, if she doesn't get thicker skin, she's gonna have a hard time in life. And so, I don't know if it was intentional about it, but my, my brother really pushed me to have thicker skin and to huh. not get offended easily or hurt easily, and to be able to defend myself through mm-hmm. words, argue, argue, arguing back, wow. which is an interesting thing as well. Wow, that definitely is interesting. So there's this journey, you grow up, that's that's your upbringing. 
And it gets to this place where, as I mentioned, you're you're in a respected seminary. You also have been at some points uh, uh, an acting leading pastor of your church. Uh, but this is going to be like quite a question. But getting to this point, what have been some of the hardest points of getting to this point where you find yourself today? Having focus is hard to do. I think from a young age, I chose to focus and pursue a path that took a long time. Hmm. And with that becomes, with every uh, yes, requires a lot of no's. And saying yes to this and saying yes to this calling and pursuing it and investing my time and energy, uh, resources, moving, all that stuff, uh, it required me to say no to a great many things. You can't have FOMO, like fear of missing out. Hmm. What are some of those no's? Sleep, a Hmm. lot of sleep. I had children, little babies, you know. Hmm. Also, uh, to uh, a lot of even just like playing, you know, like I Mm. remember uh, in college, of course, a college is a time to play and study and learn. But parents don't like to know that kids play. But I remember there were so many nights when my friends, we'd, you know, after we would do stuff, they'd want to hang out or study in large groups. And I just like had to go back to my room and buckle down, and hit the books because I had Mm. an eight o'clock class. Who has eight o'clock class in college? But I had Greek all freshman year. And, you know, there's required a lot of discipline. And like delayed gratification, because there are times when it's like, gosh, I don't even know what's going to come out of this. Hmm. So that's on, you know, on some level. But also, I think remembering holding to the call that hmm. I, 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 I the, a sense of vocation that I had from a young age. And despite remembering it when I didn't feel it, I think that was really something that I had to, that was a struggle. It wasn't something easily come by. I think I, I had to be reminded um, through the saints and my friends and family and church community, but also uh, it, my spouse and, but also deep within that, uh, despite how I feel, despite how discouraged I am or how fatigued I am, um, that there was a reason why I'm doing this and I need to keep going at it. And I felt that way even when I was a teacher at Compton High School, like when I, I, I went there and I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Trial by fire. <laughs> Uh, there were so many times that I felt like I was in over my head that it was, I didn't, for whatever reason, I'm nuts or crazy. I didn't pick an easy path, but I felt I picked paths, uh, trajectories that I felt a lot of conviction about and a lot of sense of purpose and passion for, and yet they were not easy for me Hmm. or didn't necessarily come naturally. It took a great deal of, of discipline and work and perseverance. And I think with vision and passion, perseverance is often overlooked because it's a lot of excitement with passion and you've got like ideas and plans. And then when it's slow going or when the work just requires you to show up faithfully every day, like, you know, you're with your podcast work. It's it's a it's it's a it's an act of love, but it's hard work. I think so. Persevering and remembering uh, like to not lose heart along the way was something Mm. that was a challenge. Mm. Because there's a lot of women, uh, professional women that listen to our show, and they're in different places such as entertainment, law, they're in ministry, uh, they're in leadership in different companies, they're entrepreneurs. You were talking about sleep, but how do you navigate this whole idea of work-life balance, of expectations, of gender, of being like above and beyond like a superwoman? That's a question I ask, get asked all the time, and I get it. I ask that question as well. Mm-hmm. But then the, the, the phrase work-life balance uh, conveys some of the idea that it's all like, oh, 
zen-like, peaceful. Everything is like mm-hmm. in harmony. When really it's pretty crazy. <laughs> uh, one could say manageable chaos. At when you have infants and young children, I mean, it's hard. Uh, and also, I, I, I like to think of it more like work-life tension. Hmm. And I'm, I'm coming to embrace the fact that not tension is not bad. Tension can be creative and tension can bring out the best in you. And like, you know, musical instruments require tension for the strings to play. And so I, I think of it more like tension and not and, and I see tension as a pos- has, has a lot of positive potential. And so it's not always a, ba- a 50-50. Sometimes it's 70-30 and, uh, or 60-40. It's, the configuration changes depending on life stage. When I was in you know, different parts of stages of life, sometimes you have to just, you got to get it done. I have, you know, and then there are times when there's more margin and space. And so I'm trying to sleep more. I'm at a place where I'm trying to take care of better care of myself and exercise and eat well and uh, rest more and have more time for leisure. But there to say, oh, you should be working out an hour a day when you're in doctoral program with three little kids. That's really hard. I had to be creative and go, Okay, well, my kids are my exercise. I got cardio, weight bearing and (laughs) uh, I get that all from them. (laughs) Right. But it's not working for me anymore. Your kids are going to listen to this like 10 years down the road and just have eyes wide open. Right? And so um, something's got to give. Like, mm. I don't have a perfectly clean house. Yeah, I wish mm. to. I wish mm-hmm. to have, uh, you know, there are things that I have to let go of and be mm. gracious about to mm. myself. Because mm. I think women can be really hard on themselves. They're expected to be super women. I don't meet many guys are expected to be superman or super dads. They just do a little bit and they're like, you're awesome. But women t- tend to struggle with if they don't, they're if, am I doing enough? Enough. Am I doing enough at work? Am I doing enough at church? Am I doing enough at school? I mean, with the kids, am I volunteering enough at their schools? Am I, and that's, I think, a challenge that it's, I don't know where, it's not easy to nip. And I think it takes intentionality to hmm. be more gracious to ourselves and to other women. Because a lot of times we put that on others as well. When my husband's out and about doing stuff, they don't ask. They, people don't ask him. So who's watching your kids? <laughs> I get that question. I don't know why they're asking. Like my dog. I don't know. Like of course I've taken care of childcare, or their dad, right? Uh, but so that kind of question again, it's well intentioned, but it, it reveals this double standard. Like you, I'm aware that you're here, and I'm glad you're here. But what about home? When I'm constantly thinking about the home. And so to be like, so those little, little subtle comments do sometimes get frustrating. I struggle. I, I, I like resist wanting to have some snide response, some sarcastic comment. But now I just want to say hello to the dog. <laughs> watching my kids oh, at this conference. So talking about some of the, the subtle ways in which sometimes there's gender roles and, and those things. Talking about within the workplace or just life. As a woman, what are some of the, I've heard you at times talk about the ways there's covert and overt sexism in the workplace and just in your own life journey for the men listening to our show, uh, what is something that they should be aware of? And for the women listening to our show, how have you been able to rise above those? One of the things that I realize that I catch, catch myself doing, but this is a challenge. And I was at a conference for ATS and I learned some some facts that a lot of times when men are like being interviewed for a job or sought for a position, they're, if they don't have all of the experience on their resume, they're looked at as like for their potential. Huh. He has a lot of potential to grow into this. But when they look at women for a role, they look at what they've accomplished and achieved already. Wow. 
not based on their potential. And so that what, what, what's the double bind with that is that for ministry, a lot of women have not had opportunities to have formal ministry positions. And so when they're trying to be up for a position or trying to join a staff or become groomed or, or, or shaped or prepared or want to go into ministry, uh, they don't have the resume of another person who might have had opportunities to be a youth pastor while he was in college or to have, uh, be a college pastor while he's in seminary. They don't have formal paid or intern positions. And so we also have to recognize that if we really care about women in ministry, we also have to not uh, create different, we have to be aware that sometimes they might not have all the things on the resume that a guy might have, um, but that doesn't negate their potential or their even current capacity. But I, you know, um, find myself really being hard on myself to make sure that I check off all the boxes. And it's journey, I didn't know this statistic, and it was a revelation to me because it rang true to my experience. That I'm aware of the fact that when people are like, oh, should she preach or speak? Not at my church. My church is super affirming and supportive of women in ministry, of me in ministry. Uh, but elsewhere, it's like they look, they, they, they're like, they're not, they're not sure. Like, does she have what it takes? Does she have the credentials? And so there, I'm this, I had this intuitive awareness, the sense that, like, you got to have all of these things in place in order to not be uh, disregarded or in order to not uh, to even be a contender for certain things. So when I tell women who want to go into ministry, I encourage them to consider seminary. Do you need to be in seminary to become a pastor? No, there are many people who go to seminary after they become pastors or during their journey because they realize they really want a theological education. But I can't say that that might be the case for a church trying to hire a woman. Without an MDiv, they may not even consider her. And that is a reality that it's one thing, it's frustrating. On the other hand, you have to deal with it. And that, that, that tension of you want to change how people perceive and, and hire and approach the uh, credibility and the capacity of women. But you also have to realize how it works and work with that and not be ignorant of those uh, dynamics. One of the authors or one of the people that I've heard you talk about quite a bit is Mary-Kate Morse. And it seems that her work has had a profound impact on you. Uh, can you tell us about that? Mary-Kate Morse, uh, I was introduced to her through my pastor at Echo, Brian Kim, and he, she was his professor uh, mm. early on in his MDiv education. And I met her. I know, I know her. And I, so I, it's not only her work, but her person. But some of the things that I really appreciate about, appreciate about her is, first, she's just a top-notch leader. She's so committed to the church. She's so committed to her students. She's committed to scholarship. She's a phenomenal leader of men and women. And the way she carries herself with such poise and professionalism, and yet with such pastoral, such a pastoral presence, I, I just really admire her and respect her tremendously. She talks about pastoring as mothering, hmm. and I really appreciate that image and that theoretical framework because it's not just helpful for women, but for men and women. Huh. Because that's another dimension of pastoral life and a, not a minefield of, of metaphor and uh, a framework that we have yet to tap into. And I think that it's, it's constructive and fruitful for, for pastors who are female and male to really dive into that and to wrestle with and think about that more because women, mothers do so much leadership in the home and in the community and they juggle and manage so much. Uh, multitask and organize and administrate and empower and equip. And I, I think they need more credit for the ways in which they lead at the mm -hmm. home, 
in the churches and communities around them in the workplace and and that it should also be a big asset to one CV. Uh, another thing is she talks about uh, I, I really recommend the book Making Room for Leadership, Power, Space and Influence and uh, you know mm. thinking about power, how Jesus used power. Mm. Jesus was aware of power and how did he use power not just as a power as a force but body language, gestures, speech, all mm. these little tiny things that are unspoken. Uh, that we tend to overlook. It's not just mission statements. It's not just meetings, executive meetings and speeches. That's when you exe- you know exert leadership. But it's also in the in the way one enters the room, how one makes space, how one doesn't make space, how one uh, looks at people and or fails to look at people. Those are ways in which we exert power and influence, voice modulation, you know, and uh, becoming more aware and self aware of how we use our bodies, our embodied selves, to as leaders or to how we use power, uh, I think that is really profoundly insightful. And uh, to thinking about how Jesus uses his own embodied presence, his incarnational presence as a leader is, is really instructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important because there's there's certain people that the moment they walk into a room, it's like the party has started. There's other people the moment they walk into the room, people get stressed out. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's other people that the way uh, when somebody walks into the room, they feel a weight lifted off their shoulders and feel inspired. Um, and I, I think that that's so important to uh, keep in mind. Uh, one thing is you are you talked a bit about being Korean, about being an Asian American woman. And right now you have two boys and you have one daughter and I can imagine in your journey you've unlearned quite a bit of things that maybe were brought down to you by maybe in your own household maybe in your Korean community church what are some of the things that you've had to unlearn and what are some new approaches or new things that you're teaching your daughter that are different from your upbringing let me first begin by saying that I uh, am a daughter of the Korean church and for all of that it is words and all I'm, I'm grateful for being uh, able to be a part of and serve within Korean, with first generation Korean pastors and people. And, and yet, yeah, there were challenges for sure along the way. Uh, but my, for, so some things I've had to unlearn. One is that I'm not first to make the coffee. Simple yeah. as that. I, there is so much, it's so it's a kind of a tension because wow. a service is important. Servant leadership is so important. But for women and for Asian American women, Service is is so ingrained, and being a servant and and doing, uh, uh, serving the men in your family and cutting the fruit and washing the dishes or serving that it can often be just a default mode. Mm. And it's not that it's wrong to make coffee, or to prepare food. I, I I'm not I'm trying to I'm not trying to diminish the the Christ likeness in that, but it's a reflex that I, I sometimes pause to think because you know what. My brother right there, he is capable of making a very mm-hmm. good cup of joe. And I'm going to allow him to do that, too. And I want, I'm aware, too, of when I'm you know, in group dynamics that not just women get up and clean up after food, but that we all contribute and push. You know, we have to I my boys and and my daughter have to do this. And it's not because of gender or anything like that. I remember when I was a kid, I loved my grandma. My grandma was one of my spiritual mothers and influences and woman of prayer and faith faith but she would save the best cuts of meat for my bro first male heir offspring because she only had daughters only had daughters but she had eight daughters she didn't only have them but they were trying obviously to get a son Hmm. and so when my brother was born the oldest son of uh, the oldest daughter i mean she she was a he had a special place 
And so I just remember like like the, the two prime cuts of meat and like portions, like those things were reserved for him. And I'm, I'm not, you know, it wasn't like totally overt and obvious. Like it wasn't like I was denied any food or sustenance, but I don't do that. And my daughter and my, my I, I want my sons and my daughters, when they imagine uh, leadership, I want them to vividly imagine women as much as they imagine men. Like that it is not a pause. It doesn't require them to think really hard. Hmm. You know, so when I recently, or like when I'm at church and, 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 and leading groups or preaching or when I officiated a wedding, I remember just my kids got to be there at one of them. They don't hmm. always get to come, you know. Hmm. But when they're there, I, I was just thinking for, about them. What impact that might have on them. And hopefully it's positive wow. as they grow in leadership and also uh, uh, work with leaders and, and follow leaders. That they're, they're not, that, that there's diversity when they think of leadership for themselves and for others in gender, in race, in, in so many ways, mm. um, socioeconomic background, so many things. Talking briefly about socioeconomic backgrounds, we're about to conclude in a moment, but part of what you're an expert in your work is uh, being aware and acknowledging that our socioeconomic background impacts the way in which we interpret scripture. And recently on social media, I had a friend that uh, she she had a bit of a critique on the story of Mary and Martha, how oftentimes it's interpreted as being too busy for Jesus. And what the perspective that she was sharing was, what if Jesus was doing a revolutionary act to bend gender roles? And I thought that was fascinating. I, I had actually never seen it that way. Uh, but can you chime in on that and just uh, also the, the, the importance of acknowledging that our socioeconomic backgrounds impacts the way we interpret scripture and also providing a space, a table where we can share with one another different perspectives? Well, that's a really uh, interesting reading. And I think that like you said, social location does impact the way we read. And I'm not, that's something to uh, recognize and embrace. It's, it's, it's a reality for all, whether you're acknowledging it or not. Uh, we have ways of being and ways of reading that uh, influence the way we interpret texts, biblical texts, no, no less. And I agree that Jesus does not, the fact that Jesus does not rebuke Mary in the way that Martha is, you know, getting at her for not helping out. Martha is reinforcing what's expected of Martha and Mary, of women in this time. Oh. But Jesus does not go with that, with that in that vein, but he, he asks Martha to leave her alone, let her be. She's doing the better thing. She's choosing the better thing. And not the whole thing, right? And I, that's one thing. It's, I don't think this, this story is a, a ma- account in, in Luke is meant to pit Martha against Mary. Hmm. But Jesus does not denounce or rebuke Mary for sitting there to hear and listen. And that is no doubt the posture of a disciple mm. sitting at the feet of Jesus. And he is affirming her discipleship, but he isn't negating Martha's. One mm. of the things when I read, and I spend actually a lot of time on this uh, a story in Luke 10. Oh. Uh, one, of, one of the things I, I, I think so interesting is that Martha too exerts a form of leadership. You know, we don't have Lazarus in this story, her brother, these mm. two sisters. And Martha is acting as the host. Mm. She is receiving Jesus and his disciples into her home and taking care of them as any host would do. And Mary is also receiving Jesus, but in a different way, by listening to what he's saying as an act of devotion. And like I said, Jesus affirms her as his disciple without negating Martha as his disciple as well. Mm. And I, when, I, when you think of this story, the fact that it comes after the parable of the Good Samaritan, 
I think that's significant to notice. It reminds us that I read uh, this story also in light of the parable of the Good Samaritan, that they're close together in the same chapter, that discipleship is both active, active service and active devotion. It's not just one or the other. And having these two women as examples for us reminds us, and also correctives too, right? Like that there are stuffing. He does remind Martha, 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 you're distracted by many things. I mean, mm-hmm. right now, Mary, she's doing okay here. She's mm-hmm. doing the right thing, right? But he isn't, you know, but I really relate to Martha. We have to get things done. You know, in order for us to have this conversation, somebody had to make this space available, right? There are lights in this room. There's so much behind the scenes that make ministry and uh, worship and good works possible, right? And so I think both Mary and Martha uh, remind us that Jesus uh, wants us to not only be active in service, but active in devotion. You need both, not one or the other. But in order to serve with and alongside and for Jesus, you need to receive from him. The last question of our show that we like to ask all of our guests is when it's all said and done and the world is reminiscing on Jeanette Oak, your kids, your husband, um, your students in the world, what would you like to leave as your legacy? The best compliment I have ever received was this, uh, Jeanette, you make me want to fall in love with Jesus. Mm. Now, I am committed to raising up leaders and leaders for the church. And I want to raise, I want my children to do great things in this world and all that and leave their mark. But really, when you're raising up leaders, you are raising them to lead people to Jesus and to lead people to do the work of the Father, to be part of the Father's business as Jesus was a part of, right? His Jesus' ministry of reversal and reconciliation and, and all of those, those to, be, to lead people to Jesus and to become more like him. So really that's the legacy I want to leave at the end. Man, uh, did I help people fall more in love with Jesus? Well, it's been uh, encouraging. It's been very insightful uh, being able to converse with you for those that are listening that maybe want to maybe stay connected with your work and what you're doing. What's the best way they can do that? I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram, but I'm not like a super active uh, social media mogul uh, at this time of life. It's been social media mogul. Uh, But uh, you can email me at my APU, jok at APU.com. EDU email or Jeanette, J-A-N-E-T-T-E at echochurch.com email. And I would you know, be happy to reach back if you reach out in that way. Uh, and wherever you hear me teaching, mm. preaching, or, or doing my thing, um, I'd love to connect with people. Thank you so much, Dr. Oak. You're so welcome. It was an honor. What a great conversation. There are truly some conversations that are truly just such a gift to be a part of and also to join and also to listen to. And thank you for tuning in today to such a special interview and conversation. And with that concludes this season of the show. We're going to be back, though. We're going to be back either in December or January. So stay tuned. You can stay tuned in either uh, my Facebook, Joshua Galdas, or also on our new Instagram profile, at Intersection Podcast. And in there, we'll be filling you in once we're back. We've got new guests lined up. We've got some great content. We've got some great things coming, great conversations. And we can't wait to share it with every single one of you 
grace and peace to every single one of you. And may we live with the consciousness and an awareness of what was spoken in today's episode. And also, may we not just listen and and be aware of it, but may we do proactive things to be the difference in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families, and in our world. This is Joshua Galdas signing off. Till next time, grace and peace be with you.